resuming our study this week uh, in the book of Acts. We've taken a little hiatus as we took time out for the Advent season, but we're going to return to the book of Acts uh, just to give you guys a sense of where we've been uh, or where we just were. If you'll remember, uh, before the break... Uh, We were in Jerusalem with Peter and James. James uh, died at the hands of Herod, uh, and Peter was imprisoned by Herod um, and miraculously was delivered from prison. And he ends up at the house of of John Mark, uh, his mom's house, and there's that really kind of hilarious story. And we looked at that moment. Uh, In the end, God was still accomplishing his purposes. Herod eventually dies, but it says that the word uh, continued to go out and people continued to be saved. And that's kind of where we leave off. In the meantime, Paul and Barnabas head back to Antioch. So with that, let me go ahead and read uh, from the book of Acts, chapter 13. We're going to look at the first 12 verses that's printed for you in your bulletin. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elumus, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for, for, see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had, ha- what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would attend to your word this morning, that we would see its power at work in our lives by your Holy Spirit. We ask for this to happen. Uh, And Lord, we ask that we would uh, not be ashamed of the gospel, that we would indeed take this powerful word out to the world. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well... The end of a year, isn't it? 2017 is in the books, almost. We have a few more hours left. And honestly, the news headlines are not all that nostalgic this year, are they? I don't know if you followed the news, but uh, there's not a whole lot of people saying, oh, what a great year. Uh, very, very few headlines that I've seen have anything like that. Maybe none. Uh, one article on CNN.com uh, just the other day, which was trying to highlight the upcoming year, opened with these remarks. 
This is, you know, front page CNN.com stuff. Um, it says, whether you've arrived at the finish line fresh and invigorated for another trip around the sun, or are so exhausted you may wheeze out your actual soul, 2017 is done. And that's a, that's a pretty remarkable language. It goes on and it says, Luckily, there are all kinds of cool and important things to look forward in 2018 to mitigate all of the things you'll inevitably come to loathe and dread as the year progresses. <laughs> it's like, this is really darn depressing. So next time someone says, Do we really have to go on living for another whole year? Comfort them by mentioning these uh, existence-friendly events, innovations, and observances. Man! But that's kind of where we're at, isn't it? That's that's kind of the sentiment of the year. Pretty dark, mildly hopeless. Maybe some of you feel the same. Maybe you don't. I don't know how you feel, but as Christians, how ought we to view this new year coming up? And not just this new year, but every day in our home lives, in our workplaces, in our schools, every day. And even for us here at CCPC, how are we to look forward? How are we to feel? What ought to be our perspective as we engage in the world? Well, I think the text encourages us to seek the Lord And as we do that with expectant hearts, to see Him. To see Him and what He is going to do. That's our call. is not to be hopeless, but to be full of hope because of the God who is ours, who is able. It's so easy for us to be discouraged, to stop caring, to just kind of go through the motions of life each, fee- each year feeling a little bit more like the grind, right? Each year feeling a little bit harder. That's, that's our natural reaction. We look for those minor bright spots, those highlights, as uh, the author of that CNN article was talking about. But our text points us to an expectancy and a hope and a work of God that is much grander than our often low expectations. God is at work bringing about His eternal kingdom. And He does so using all the very gifts of His church. In other words, He uses us in His plan. What an amazing reality. Therefore, let's seek the Lord and see what He will do. I'll look at this in a a few parts. First, seeking the Lord and what He has for us to do. He's going to use us. So, looking to the text, God uses the diverse gifts of His people. We see that here in our text. Uh, verse 1 is a really remarkable um, remarkable line here. In, in the very first uh, verse, we get a list of names. Did you notice? Uh, it said, Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Uh, a few of these people we know about already. We know Barnabas. Uh, we know Saul. Uh, the other names are, are, are new to us, though um, there's been some debate as to who these people were and whether they referred to people that we 
we've already met in scripture earlier. Um, but most of the commentators come to the same conclusion. These are these are new uh, people that we haven't yet met. Um, and who are they? Well, we don't have a whole lot of information, but we have just a little bit of a few things that we can note about them. First, Barnabas. We've already learned about him. He's the the son of encouragement. He's the one that the Jerusalem church sent to Antioch uh, to instruct them in the faith. Why did they send him? Remember, we talked about that. Because of who he was, the gifts that he had. Uh, this sort of unassuming guy who, who cared deeply uh, to spread the gospel abroad. And not only that, but he was one who didn't care about himself that much. He, he realized he needed help and he went to get Saul. And as we move through the book of Acts, we'll see Barnabas decreases in some sense and Paul increases. He's a really remarkable man. Barnabas. Simeon, who was called Niger, he was likely a Christian convert of African descent. Hence his name. He was of dark complexion. He was probably not like the people in Antioch. Um, What a remarkable thing. These are prophets and teachers here from all over the world gathered in this metropolitan center, which is uh, uh, Antioch. Remember I mentioned it was one of the third or fourth largest cities in the Roman Empire. Uh, And the church reflected that diversity, not just in the people that were meeting, but in its leadership, in its prophets and teachers. Remarkable. Lucius the Cyrene, another uh, African, probably from northern Africa, along the coastline. Another, somebody who came as part of that uh, sort of multi-ethnic crowd that was the church in Antioch, full of Jews and Gentiles alike from around the Roman Empire. And then another remarkable person here, Menaean, the foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, this was not the Herod who just uh, um, uh, killed James and imprisoned Peter. This is uh, his uncle, actually, one of the uh, sons of Herod the Great, uh, Herod Antipas. He was the one who beheaded John the Baptist. This was his foster brother, right? So somebody who grew up with him. Uh, and here he is. One of the leaders of the church in Antioch. What a remarkable thing. And of course, then there's Saul, the former persecutor turned missionary. It's pretty hard to imagine a more diverse group of men who are here described as prophets and teachers gathered together, wondering, looking expectantly to what the Lord was going to do. Christ, of course, had commissioned the apostles to go and make disciples of all nations. What an amazing thing. God's mission is a global mission. In order to accomplish His global mission, He raises up from among all the peoples of the earth His teachers, His prophets, His leaders. Not only were they diverse in where their backgrounds were from, but they were diverse in their gifts. Um, We've already described the differing gifts of Saul and Barnabas. Um, There were different gifts given to these various men. Some were teachers and some were prophets. We also know that with 
Barnabas and with Saul went another one named John or John Mark. Uh, we've seen a little bit about him throughout this story. Uh, he's somebody who has uh, who would have known Christ while he lived on the earth. He was somebody who would have sort of been on that sort of close circle to the disciples, but not right there. Um, he was he probably went with Saul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys for the express purpose that he was able to describe uh, in detail. The life of Christ in a way that even Paul, who who witnessed Christ in his glorious vision, um, and Barnabas, who who came who came later, he was uh, somebody who would have been an eyewitness of the Lord. Who probably went for those purposes. We also uh, he would also have been somebody who maybe took care of some other aspects of behind the scenes ministry. We aren't told much, um, but there were different gifts that were given. There were also gifts in the church that are not necessarily prophetic or teaching gifts uh, here that we see in the text. Just hints of them, really. Uh, we get a glimpse, if you will. We're told that while they uh, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, that, that is, the church as a whole was gathered together praying and fasting and looking forward to what the Lord would do. There were people other than these prophets and teachers. And later on, we're told that they continued to pray and fast and that they laid hands on uh, Barnabas and Saul as they sent them off. Now, I just have to, I've made an assumption here, and I, and I want to just carefully describe why, why I made in a certain assumption. I said they, uh, the text says, um, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, um, there is some question as to whether it does the they refer to these particular prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Menaean and, and uh, Saul, or does the they refer to the church, right? Now they were in the church at Antioch. Uh, there were in the church at Antioch these particular uh, persons, prophets and teachers. Uh, I don't know for certain, and I'm not sure the text is completely clear on this, but I would say this. I think that they refers to the whole church. And here are my reasonings. There are really two reasonings. Um, the first reasoning is that uh, the first verse sets us up to see the church and what it was about and who was in it and what were the parts. And then I think verse 2 says... And while they, that is the church, was worshiping, I think it's referring to the church. So that's the first reason. I, I think the reason those names are mentioned is because they, the church, were going to set apart some of those men to be sent off. They wanted to highlight who was there, and they're saying, out of those men, these two men were going to be called, laid hands on, and sent off to go. Um, uh, so, it isn't exactly clear. I also think that when they talk about worship, that's usually kept to the church. I mean, it's not, not exclusively. There's oftentimes where an individual might worship before the Lord, but oftentimes when, especially considering they bring up the church, I think when we see this language of worship and prayer and fasting, it seems to be broad. It seems to talk about the whole church. So those are the reasons. Um, the text isn't absolutely clear. Um, but I do think, even if it's just a hint at the various gifts of the church, you understand that God calls us all in different ways to use our gifts. Some to prayer, some to encouragement, 
some to teaching, some to behind the scenes. We all have gifts that God uses, diverse set of gifts and a diverse set of people. Well, I want to take a little bit of a time out here, if you'll let me. I want to talk a little bit about fasting. And I'm bringing up fasting because I, I, I don't think it's a common practice. I could be wrong, but it hasn't been a common practice for me. Uh, I've done it on occasion, um, but very rarely. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about fasting, what it is why it's significant and important. Because we see it here twice, in fact. First, they were praying, and they were, or they were worshiping, and they were fasting, and they were looking to see what the Lord would do. And then once the Lord says, send Saul and Barnabas, they again pray and fast and lay hands on Saul and Barnabas. And so we see it twice here in a very short section, this concept of fasting. And I want to talk a little bit about it. Um, I think in general we comprehend prayer as challenging as that is for us sometimes, right? Um, but we we do, we do understand prayer. Fasting may be a bit more foreign to us. Jesus talks about fasting in his Sermon on the Mount. He encouraged to do it. He encourages us to do it privately, as opposed to be doing it before men. Right. So he says, clean up, dress up. Don't don't cover yourself with ashes and and make yourself look like you're fasting. Just just do it, not for the praise of men, but for the glory of God. Don't do it for others. So that's one example. Uh, and, and I think uh, when we hear those words, maybe, subtly, we're prevented from doing it at all because we're fearful. We don't, we don't want to do something for the praise of others, so we don't do it at all. There's lots of reasons we don't do it. We don't like to not eat. Um, but maybe that's one excuse that we make. One Christian professor, Don Whitney, who wrote a book on spiritual discipline, said this, without a purpose, fasting can be a miserable, self-centered experience. And that's, a, that's a really dark look. But, it, but if it doesn't have purpose, and, and so sometimes we're like, well, what, what is fasting about? Why do we do it? What, what's its purpose? Um, and yet, if we were to read through Scripture, fasting is a regular practice. In fact, on some regular holy days, it was expected. On the Day of Atonement, there would be fasting. Well, first, it might be helpful to note that Scripture shows us multiple kinds of fasts um, as we think about the purpose of fasting. Um, there are general food fasts. Jesus himself fasted in the wilderness for 40 days, and he doesn't eat. And remember, he was tempted to eat. Satan came to him, said, make these rocks, turn them into bread, and he refuses. Um, in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, there's sort of a partial fast, right? Uh, they refuse to eat. Uh, some of the food that was before them that, that they felt was uh, unclean and so they just had uh, the vegetable fast or whatever it was while they were in Babylon, Daniel. Um, there are absolute fasts of both food and water. Ezra has a food and water fast upon hearing about the sins of the Israelites and right as they make covenant to, to sort of repent of their sin and make a covenant, renew a covenant with the Lord. Ezra fasts uh, from both food and water. Um, 
There are some miraculous fasts that are similar to that. Uh, some of the prophets fasted that way for 40 days. Uh, you can't do that without miraculous intervention. Um, there are private fasts, such as Jesus describes on the sermon in, in the Sermon on the Mount. There are congregational fasts, as we see right here in our text, or corporate fasts. Um, there are fasts in Scripture that are occasional, as we see here, or, as I already described, that are regular and that they're associated with a particular holy day. So that's a, those are examples of all the varying kinds of fasts. But now, what about purpose of a fast? Um, there are, uh, can be discerned for various reasons uh, you might fast. They can be to discern the Lord's direction, as the case here in Acts, in Acts 13, or to strengthen and focus prayer, as in Ezra and Nehemiah, or to express grief, as in the death of King Saul, or to seek divine protection, or to express repentance, or to express heartfelt worship and praise. Anna, we just learned, I mean, we actually didn't look at Anna but uh, in our Advent series, but Anna, the prophetess, uh, when uh, Jesus is presented at the temple, Anna had been there day in and day out, fasting and praying, in expectation and praise to God, uh, as she looked and waited for the consolation of Israel. In general, fasting is used to seek the Lord and to focus our hearts and minds on Him. It puts us in a place of complete dependence upon the Lord. And doing it corporately, it brings us together with a singular heart and mind and purpose. Now, I need to say, personally, I've already said that I haven't put a lot of time into fasting, and it's been for me very occasional, and I, I, I have been encouraged at various times to do it by my former pastor and would do it with him for brief moments. I don't know if you can count it as a fast. Um, but I want to encourage you. We are going to be having an opportunity as a church to seek the Lord's direction through prayer and fasting. Tammy and the Church Life Committee are putting together, at this moment, they're starting to work to put together an opportunity for us to come together as a church and to pray and fast at various points throughout the month. Uh, we'll be rolling this out in the next month or so. And it's an opportunity for us as a church to look forward to this new year in great expectation at what the Lord has in store for us. And I want to encourage you to sign up for that. It'll be in a few weeks. But that's my aside, okay? I'm aside on fasting. I thought it came up in the text. Providentially, it was an opportunity. Um, it was a long aside, but I think it's important for us to consider as we look expectantly to the Lord to see what He will do in our midst and through us using our gifts. As we see this Antiochian church seek the Lord expectantly, I think we can take courage to follow in their path and see what the Lord will do. Well, the text points out that the Holy Spirit answered their prayers and fasting by appointing Saul and Barnabas to go and spread the word abroad. Then, even after having this direction from the Spirit, they continued to pray and fast as they set these men apart by laying on the hands for apostolic mission. 
We've seen how important it is to seek the Lord and offer ourselves up to His service in whatever capacity He calls us. He's given us all sorts of gifts. But secondly, as we seek the Lord and what He will do, we can expect His Word to go out with power. That's part of our expectation is we're going to see the Lord at work and we're going to see Him at work through the proclamation of His Word as it goes out with power. Saul, Barnabas, and John Mark. It says John, just John here, but in John Mark is the John that we're uh, assuming, and we, we can go back in the early text uh, before this one to see that it's likely who went with them. Um, they sailed to Cyprus, uh, a little, um, just a little bit about the Cy- uh, Cyprus. Cyprus is an island nation. Um, uh, at the time of uh, the Roman Empire, it was just another island in the midst of the Roman Empire. It was a Mediterranean crossroads. Right? Uh, just as a little background, it's been in the hands of the Greeks and the Romans, and since then, since the time of the New Testament, it's been in the Byzantine hand. Uh, King Richard the Lionhearted of England captured it. It's kind of a little aside. He's the real king, and he went and captured this. Um, and he handed it over to the Knights Templar. It's kind of curious. There's probably all sorts of crazy things there. Uh, who, in turn, turned it over to a friend, the French. Uh, and then the Ottomans came, and the Ottomans took it over. Um, and then the British Empire came back, and they took it over again later. Um, and finally, it gained its independence uh, in the last couple centuries um, with some Turkish interference. Uh, so you can kind of get a picture of the kind of place it was. Uh, constantly being bombarded. Ships passing across this sea would stop. They would take it over. They would establish uh, their power there, and then it would change hands again. Um, Being a crossroads there, for it was a natural place to start an apostolic mission. This is going to be a place where people are coming and passing through God could establish His work and His kingdom there and the word would spread from that point to all corners of the Roman Empire. Right? As ships and people traveled. They start their mission first in the Jewish synagogue. It was a a natural place to start and this became the pattern throughout the missionary journeys of Paul and the apostles. Um, And it followed the pattern of Scripture, didn't it? The, 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 the hope of salvation came first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Um, Paul himself was Jewish and had great love and compassion for his people. We see this in Romans 11 and uh, 10 and 11. He goes to great lengths to talk about his concern for the Jews. Uh, there was an immediate place to have access there in the synagogue to proclaim the word. So there was an opportunity. They could go to the synagogue. As, as Jews, they could then have an opportunity to stand and to proclaim the word of God. And we aren't told what happened in that mission. Just that they did that. Just that they went to this synagogue. Um, and then we're told that they went across the whole island. And my guess is they went from synagogue to synagogue and then to the streets and to wherever else they had opportunity to speak. And then they find themselves in one of the most unlikely places of all, in the presence of the proconsul, that is, in the presence of the highest ranking Roman official, Sergius Paulus. 
Here he is described as a man of intelligence or a clever and wise man. He was somebody who had a hunger to hear what these men were saying. They'd been going from town to town to village to village and finally they came to the end of the island and he says, I want to hear what these men have to say. We don't know much about this fellow. He was, uh, there is some archaeological evidence of him that he, and he indeed was a, a proconsul in, um, in Cyprus uh, and that he also spent some time in Rome overseeing uh, some of, of, of the work in Rome. But what I want us to see in these few verses, though it's really very little detail, is just this, the spread of God's word. The word of God, the gospel, went out. I think we often think of the awesome power of God, right? Paul, Saul, and Barnabas sent, laid hands on, the Holy Spirit was present, and they, were, they went off to Cyprus, and they were going with power. And what was the power? It was the word of God in the hands of the Holy Spirit. When we think of power, we often th- the power of God, we often think of God's creative act, right? He spoke and, and the whole world came into being. Or we think of the crossing of the Red Sea. Moses standing there with his staff and the waters dividing and the people walking through in deliverance and the waters coming across Pharaoh and his army. We think of that as power. Or the miracles of Jesus in the New Testament healing the lame and the sick. That's power. But... The most significant picture of God's working in this world is the proclamation of God's Word. It's how He establishes His kingdom. He sends out the apostles to make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that the Lord Jesus has commanded. That's the power. So as we watch in great expectation to see God at work, what we should look for is the proclamation of the Word of God. It's the advance of the Gospel. What changes hearts is the Spirit of God applying the truths proclaimed. We looked uh, this morning at the, the, the doctrine of regeneration or the new birth in the Sunday school class. Talked about the Spirit being the hound of heaven, right? That, that picture from that old poem, the hound of heaven going after a person. Well, how does that, what does that hound of heaven use? This is the word, presses it into the heart. Until eyes are open and we can see and we say, This is truth, this is life power of God unto salvation. Here was Paul and Barnabas in the presence of the most powerful man on the island proclaiming the gospel. And then there was another man. (laughs) Had an ironic name. Bar-Jesus. Bar, just son of son of Jesus or son of Joshua, um, presumably he was a Jewish magician. His other name, 
simply means magician or um, and he was one who was opposed to the apostles' teaching and tried to turn the proconsul away from faith. The word not strong enough. Paul's filled with the Holy Spirit. He speaks the word of God to him. He calls him the devil. Strong words, but words that recognize the source of all who would thwart or put themselves up against Christ. And it's particularly with regards to the word that the apostle condemns him, right? What is, what is the, this uh, man about? What is this uh, magician about? It, well, it says that he was the, Paul says that he was the enemy of all righteousness. That is, all that scripture teaches that is right and good that comes from God, this man opposes. Not only that, but it says that he was full of deceit. And I love this word, villainy. My kids could talk about villains. Villains in the Minions or villains in... I don't know. There's all sorts of villains. Villainy. It's kind of a funny word to find in Scripture. So I, I, I just kind of sat there for a minute to think, was he like that evil guy sitting in the corner? Like, like what, what is this? It's villainy. What does that word even mean? The word means guile or cunning. Or treachery. In other words, he was a man who was attempting to twist and to turn the truth, to take the, the, the clear path, as Isaiah says uh, earlier. You know, he, the Christ came to to make the mountains into a highway for God, to take the crooked path and make them straight. And here he's doing the exact opposite. He's taking that straight path that the gospel is, that the, the apostles were teaching, and he's tying it up and he's making it crooked and he's he's pointing people in the wrong direction. There's uh, uh, one of the most famous works ever written, Paul Bunyan's. Um, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, I feel like that that whole story is just one of like Pilgrim or the Christian walking and meeting a character who tries to turn him the wrong way. Like it feels like over and over again. It's like no, go this way. Go up to. Uh, you, you don't need to go that hard route. Just go this easy path. It's crooked roads. In all ways, this man was trying to twist and turn the truth and to make it say something else. So Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, declares that the Lord will make this blind man blind. Physically blind. This spiritually blind man blind. But there's really a note of grace in this too. You see this. Like the gospel, the proclamation of God's love and grace. And I don't know what happened to this magician, but the Apostle Paul's words are pretty gracious. So I'm going to make you blind for a time. It makes you wonder what ended up happening. The powerful word of God even changing the heart of this magician. We don't, we don't know the end of the story with him. But it just begs the question, maybe, what happened? Upon this miraculous event of making, of declaring that the Lord would, would 
uh, hand would rest upon him and that he would be blind. The, the, the mist comes down, the darkness comes, and this, blind, this now blind magician has to be led around. The one who thought he could see, who could lead others in directions, now had to be led around. Uh, and what happens? The most powerful man in Cyprus believes the gospel. It's interesting to note that despite the constant turnover of power on this little island, did you know that this little island nation remains one of the most religious places on earth, but mostly Christian? Now, it's had its ups and downs over the years, but today, if you go, the church is still there. God defends His Word, and His Word goes out with power. This gives us great comfort. I think sometimes fear and feelings of weakness prevent us from sharing the Gospel. We're afraid of ridicule. We're afraid of not being able to defend the truth. But when our eyes are fixed expectantly on what God will do and how He will defend His Word, it emboldens us, it enables us to go out and say, and we talked about this in our Sunday school class too, that the fact that God's sovereign grace is the thing, that God's Spirit is the one who works, we can go out with boldness knowing that He will accomplish His purposes, that His kingdom will come. Finally, I want to conclude with this thought. As we seek the Lord, as we look forward to seeing what He's going to do through us and through His Word, we can take great comfort that as His people, we are at the forefront of God working. We are His agents in this world and we have an opportunity not only to bear witness to it, but to be His hands and His feet. Over and over again in, the past, in this passage, we see this reality. The Holy Spirit comes. You see that over and over again. The beginning. They're, they're, in, they're in that spot. They're, they're worshiping and praying. And it says, uh, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... And then just a little further down in verse 4, it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And then again, as they were, as they were facing this magician, it says in verse 9, But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. I think it would be easy for us to forget as we look at the works of the apostles in the early church, it's not about them. It's about Christ. It's about His kingdom. It's about His work. It's about His Spirit. And as we enter a new year, what I hope is that we'll look expectantly to God. That we'll spend time in prayer and fasting, not just for us as a congregation, but for our witness that we would look expectantly to see what the Holy Spirit will do in us and through us as He accomplishes His purpose. As we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Let us see what the Lord will do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank You uh, for Your grace to us that You, through all the various means of Your appointment, brought the Word of life into our hearts and lives, that we can sit here gathered together knowing uh, the Gospel and the hope of Christ, that You uh, use other men and women to share with us the hope. Lord, give us a burden for the lost. Help us to speak that powerful word of truth to others. And Lord, show us your glory as you work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.